0: Welcome, and thanks for listening to the New Life Christian Ministries podcast. If you'd like more information about New Life or for more podcasts and other media, go to newlifexn.org. Good morning. Welcome to New Life. Uh, If you're a first-time guest with us here this morning, we are so excited uh, that you have come out and decided to join us this morning. Uh, we've prayed for you. Uh, we prepared for you. We got coffee ready for you this morning. We cookies and, and donuts and such at Hospitality ready for you this morning. And, and really, at New Life on Sunday morning and Saturday night, if you're a first time guest here, uh, you are who we are thinking about when we're getting ready for service. Throughout the week, as we prepare our message, our mind is really bent upon you. And so we're just so excited uh, that you've decided to come out and join us. And we, we just really hope that you're enjoying your time with us this morning. If you don't know who I am, my name is Mark Lutz. I'm the director of student ministries, or one of the directors of student ministries here at New Life. Um, I work specifically with leadership development uh, and 6th, 7th, and 8th graders. So willingly, um, I work with middle schoolers. Um, I work alongside uh, with another youth director here at New Life who does uh, youth worship and senior high ministry with ninth through 12th graders. His name is Alex DeRosa. We call him A-Rod. And so I'm in in charge of working uh, with relevant student ministries here. And I'm just so privileged to get the opportunity to come and share with you this morning in what has been uh, just a really great series that we've been in uh, for the past three weeks that we're getting the opportunity to wrap up this morning in this series called You Are Here. Now, normally, our senior pastor, Pastor Chris Marshall, would be here with us this morning. But Pastor Chris and another one of the members of our family here, Faith Toomey, uh, are not with us this morning because they're on the other side of the world uh, in Cambodia, um, ministering uh, in the Lord's name there. Um, Specifically, Faith, I believe, is is with a a couple of different orphanages. And Pastor Chris um, is in some orphanages but also doing some teaching. And they'll be wrapping up uh, their missions work later this week um, in the city. Hong Kong for a missions conference. And as Pastor Chris is doing some visiting and some ministry work um, over there in Cambodia, he's been sending us um, just some really awesome stuff about what God has been doing and how God has been using him while he's in Cambodia, along with Faith, has been updating Facebook with some pictures and and some things that she's been doing over there as she's exploring the idea and the the possibility, because she feels God's called her into missions work and might possibly be going... um, to live in in Cambodia long-term, and so she's over there to be exploring that option right now. So that's where Pastor Chris is um, today. So for the past three weeks, we've been in this series um, called You Are Here, and we've been exploring something called the Spiritual Growth Continuum. And in the Spiritual Growth Continuum, Pastor Chris and Pastor Brad, and Pastor Brad is our worship arts pastor here. Uh, He was a guy up here playing the guitar and then ran our communion um, today, and so uh, served communion today. So Pastor Chris, Pastor Brad have been taking us through something that we've been calling the spiritual growth continuum, and that comes to us from a book. Okay, So this book is a book that was researched by a church, and it was taken from a large grouping of churches and people in churches. And so the book is called Move, and the point of the book was to examine the stages of spiritual growth and what it takes to have people move from one point to another and to grow spiritually. And then what is it that people in different stages of the spiritual journey, what do they look for from the church? What are some of their flaws and what are some of the qualities of people who are in different spiritual gr- stages? And the book move broke those people down into four groups, hence why we have a four-week series in the series called You Are Here. And so in our very first week Pastor Chris did a lot of jumping around down here on the stage as he talked about those who are called explorers. uh, Something that Pastor Brad talked a little bit about this morning was people who were exploring. And those are just people who you're not really sure who Jesus is. Um, You're not really sure. Maybe there is a God. Maybe there isn't a God. Uh, But you're just interested in figuring that out. So you're interested in maybe exploring uh, this whole God thing in general. So you're an explorer. And then the next week, Pastor Chris brought us another message where he began to talk about the next stage in spiritual growth, which is believers. And these are the people who've moved from exploring, and they've said, okay, I'm now convinced that Jesus is the Savior of the world. I'm convinced of his story. I'm convinced of the Word of God, the Holy Word of God, the Bible. And so I've committed my life to Jesus as my Savior. I've allowed Jesus to enter my life to give me a new life and committed to him as being my savior. And so these, this next category is called believers. And then la- just last week, Pastor Chris gave us, or Pastor Brad gave us a great sermon. Um, and actually, if, you, if you've missed any of these, you can, you can check them out on our website at newlifexn.org. And if you check them out, you can actually watch all of these and some of our previous series if you want to catch any of that. But Pastor, uh, Pastor Brad gave us a great message on the third category, which is disciples disciples of jesus and these are realistically people who've made a decision that jesus is no longer just my savior but jesus jesus is now also my lord because the bible does not describe jesus just as a savior although it does describe him as a savior but it also describes him as a lord so savior meaning he saves us from sin and death lord meaning owner and so disciples are really taking this next step and saying jesus is the most important thing in my life And so what goes beyond that, right? What goes beyond that? Because I have to talk about the fourth category today. And what's unique about that is I work with sixth, seventh, and eighth graders. And the heart of Relevant Student Ministries is to create a culture that broken kids love to come to because we believe that healed people lead transformed lives. And so as that's our heart of our ministry, we really do hard target kids who come from broken homes and bad environments. That's, that's our heart, is to just go and just chase down kids who come from just, just bad, bad situations. And so we target that type of student in our ministry. And so 90% of the time when I'm speaking, and 99% of the time when I'm speaking on a Tuesday night, I'm speaking to people who are in the exploring category and sometimes the believing category. It's pretty rare for me to be targeting this over here because there's not a lot of 6th, 7th, and 8th graders who are really taking that jump into being spirit-led believers of Jesus, which is the fourth category. A spirit-led believer in Jesus, spirit-led follower, rather, sorry, spirit-led follower of Jesus, spirit-led follower of Jesus. So what is this fourth category? What is the thing that defines it? What's the thing that defines it between a disciple and someone who's this spirit-led follower? What's the defining attribute between the two? And as we looked at this book move and I read the chapter on this this fourth category, what I found that they said was the thing that defined the difference between a disciple of Jesus and a spirit-led follower of Jesus was this one word, and this one word was surrender. Surrender. And this word surrender has everything to do with our take-home point today. And if you're new or... Maybe you just never listened to the first 15 minutes of any of our sermons. Um, Then then you maybe don't know what a take-home point is. And a take-home point is the one point that we want you to take home with you. So it's the one thing that our message hinges upon. It's the one point that I'm going to make today. I don't make 20-point sermons. We make one-point sermons here at New Life. And so as preachers, we try to just drive one point home. And our take-home point for today, we're going to go ahead and pull it up on the screen, is simply this. Spirit-led followers live lives of surrender. Spirit-led followers live lives of surrender. So what's unique about this is that surrender, surrender is something that we just generally don't like to talk about in our culture. Right? Maybe within the Christian culture occasionally. So occasionally in Christian culture, we're okay with talking about surrender. But generally speaking, in the American culture, we're not okay with talking about the concept of surrender. And why is that? Because surrender often symbolizes weakness or cowardice, right? In fact, we immortalize uh, symbols like Custer's Last Stand and stories like that. It was symbols that people who never surrendered. We, we take stories of football teams who were the underdogs and won the championship, and we put them into movies so that they'll never be forgotten. We, we take life and we want to fight for the American dream or die trying. The concept of surrender is a concept that's associated with weakness and cowardice in our culture. And so the concept of surrender is something that's pretty foreign in counterculture. And so when we talk about the fact that the difference between someone who is a disciple of Jesus and someone who enters this fourth category, a spirit-led follower of Jesus, is the subject of surrender It's sometimes hard to imagine that. And it's hard to imagine that because it goes against most of what our capitalist American culture would say is the correct thing to do. So when I began thinking about this subject of surrender and I read about that in this book, Move, I said that can't be true unless it's true from the Word of God and from the Bible. So I began to go to the Word of God, and I like looking for overarching themes from the Word of God. So I began to look at it, and I began to say, where are there situations in which I've seen God's people surrender? And and I found them. I found them all over the place. But there were two places that stuck out to me more than any others. And if you ever heard me preach, you know that I'm a storyteller. And I love to tell stories. So I'm going to tell you two stories from the Word of God today. And the first story comes to us from the Old Testament. They're both going to come from the Old Testament, but the first one comes from the very first book in the Bible. So if you flipped open your Bible or you pulled it up on your app on your phone, you would find that the very first book of the Bible is named Genesis. And in the book of Genesis, you find a man partway through that book named Abram. And Abram is a man who's given a new name by God, and that name is Abraham. And so Abraham has this really intriguing life because Abraham's life consistently intersects with God's so God continually puts his will into the world but he's consistently doing that through the life of Abraham which is a really unique situation It doesn't appear, at least in the word of God, that God is consistently interacting with any other group of people. He might be, but it doesn't come across in the word of God that way. But it seems like he's consistently interacting with this one man, Abram, who was renamed Abraham, and his wife, who was renamed Sarah. And at one point, God gives him a promise and says to Abraham, Abraham, through you and Sarah, through your offspring, your children, I am going to create a great nation that cannot be counted greater than the stars in the sky the sand on the seashore and they're going to be a blessing to all the world to all the nations to all people and Abraham believes it and God counts his faithfulness and his belief in God's promise as righteousness to him and so as Abraham believes that eventually Sarah conceives and gives birth to a child and Abraham loves this son deeply and desperately. In fact, he seems to even forsake most everything else in his life for this son of his because he knows that God's promise to him will come through this child. And so he raises him until we get to the point in which God comes and just interacts with him again in Genesis chapter 22 where we see him testing Abraham. And in Genesis chapter 22, he comes and meets with Abraham, and Abraham responds, and and God says, Abraham, I want you to take your son to this region called Moriah, and there I'm going to show you a mountain, and on that mountain, you're going to take your son, and you're going to sacrifice him as a burnt offering. And this is the surrender point for Abraham, right? This is the surrender point for him, because he has the choice right now. And oftentimes it's the choice that I'm faced with in life. And maybe if you are a disciple of Jesus that you're faced with as well. And that's the choice of, I didn't hear God right. Oh, that seems like that's just too unrealistic. That seems crazy. That's not a God thing for sure. That must, I must have let that creep inside my brain all on my own. Or, or you know, wow, oh, man, I really misheard him. I'm going to go back to him again until he says something different. Or just flat out, I heard him right, and I'm just not going to do it. That's too high a cost. I won't surrender that. Oftentimes, as Christians, we don't want to be the type of people who just say no to God. We find like cute and fun ways to scoot around it and say, "Well, that's really not my calling." A- and oftentimes, that's really not my calling. Oftentimes, just well, it's just not. It's it's not how God has made me. Oftentimes, just becomes uh, an excuse to just. Not do what he says. Uh, But Abraham has the last option, which is just surrendering. And in this case, it's surrendering the life of his son. He knows the will of God, so he surrenders. And he takes his son and some men, and they go to Moriah. And when they get there, he takes just his son with the wood and the fire and the oil. And they go to the mountain that God shows them. And on the way up, his son begins to realize there's no goat for the sacrifice and he says to his father and I can see you know some people say well Abraham knew you know he knew ahead of time that God wasn't going to have him sacrifice his son but I'm not so sure that's true I think maybe maybe Abraham was trying to shield his son from the reality that he was going to have to kill him that this was the end of the line because as his son goes to his father father where's the sacrifice his his father Abraham says son God's God's going God's to provide the sacrifice, knowing that he already had. And so they get to the top of the mountain, and they prepare. And Abraham binds his son and pulls the knife to strike it upon his son and kill him. And when he goes to strike his son with the blade, God calls out to him, Abraham, Abraham, do not lay a hand upon the boy, for I see now that you did not even withhold your son from me. For in that moment of Abraham, it was surrender. For he was willing to give all things. It's funny to me though, because the story I'm going to tell you in this story also have moments where these people had moments of faltering. Where they refused to surrender. Because just before this story in in Genesis chapter 16, we see a story of, of Abraham and a woman named Hagar. Where Hagar is the servant to Abraham's wife Sarah. And Sarah is getting old in years and she's barren and unable to have children. They haven't given birth to the son yet that would soon be the heir to all of these promises that God had given. And and Sarah, doubting God's promise, thinking God's incapable of bringing a child from her now that she's grown too old to have children, has been barren her entire life, says to Abraham, take my servant girl Hagar and sleep with her. And if she bears you a child, we'll raise it as ours. And so he does and he sleeps with Hagar and she gives birth to a son named Ishmael. And it was in that moment of a lack of faith and a lack of surrender that Ishmael was brought into the world and Abraham loves Ishmael as his own. But it's through the line of Ishmael that for years and years, hundreds of years, thousands of years afterwards, that Israel the nation struggles and fights against his descendants the ramifications of the lack of surrender go years hundreds of thousands of years into the future even possibly into today as many nations track their heritage back to Ishmael the other story I want to tell you is of a man named Jonah and you might remember him if you grew up inside the church you may have, you know, colored a cute picture of him. He would have been the man inside the whale rowing a rowboat. You know, he's like happy. He's got the beard and the robe, and he's just happily inside the, like picking up krill inside the belly of the whale. Yeah, you remember him. Uh, not an atomically correct whale, of course, because there's no way he's fit in the, but anyway, so you remember him. He was in the belly of the whale in the sea. And so Jonah, what's really interesting to him about, to me about him is, is that We spend so much time focusing on Jonah being in the belly of the whale, in the belly of the fish, but yet there's really only like one or two verses that talk about it, and then there's a poem that he writes, right? A song. Uh, But really the story of Jonah, the thing that strikes me about it is a story of surrender. The few chapters that we have about this bitter old mean prophet is, is a story of surrender. Because it starts out with this wicked city called Nineveh. And in this city called Nineveh, God has decided that he's going to destroy everybody because it's so wicked and so evil. But he has decided to give them one last chance to repent and turn away from their wicked and evil ways. And he's decided that to give them this last chance, he was going to choose Jonah to go there and give them the last chance. To preach to them and tell them to turn away from the things that they've done wrong. Lucky Jonah, right? Because he gets to be the guy that gets to go to Las Vegas And run around telling everyone that Jesus is going to rain down fire on them. If they don't board up their strip clubs and sell all their casinos and shut down all of their clubs. That's a terrible job. That's an awful job. You're going to look super crazy doing that. And not only that, but Jonah's like pretty racist. He's like a little bit racist. Have you ever read the story? He's a little bit racist. He hates the Ninevites. And not like just like a few people living in the city of Nineveh. He hates them. Like the people group that live in Nineveh. The whole city of people. He's like a racist old prophet. I don't know how old he was. But I imagine him being old because that's how I colored him as a child. Okay? And so, and so he does not like the Ninevites. And he sees this as a really unique opportunity. God has chosen him to go save them. And he's like, God, you're a gracious God. Surely you'll forgive them. So this is a really great opportunity. I hate them. I can commit genocide without getting my hands dirty. So the best way to do that would be by not going at all. So he gets in a boat and goes to a different city. And as he goes to that other city, if you know the story, you know that God sends a storm. In fishermen who've been fishermen for a long time, no one's storms are weird. And they've come from God. So these fishermen are in this storm, and they're like, this is a weird storm, and this is a God storm, and we're going to die in this God storm. So uh, we got to figure out who who did something wrong. So they, they, I don't know, roll some dice. They cast lots. I have no clue what that is. But they cast lots, and they land on Jonah. Once again, I don't know what that looks like in reality, but it happened. And Jonah was like, oh, by the way, I'm running from God. And they're like what <laughs> like why would you do that to us and, the, and Jonah's like hey throw me overboard um, just throw me into the sea and let me die and the the thought would be that this is Jonah's moment of surrender right he's willing to die it's his moment of surrender but here's my thought this is not Jonah's moment of surrender right he would rather die than have the people of Nineveh be saved He would rather him, if he died and everybody else in Nineveh died, that'd be fine with him. He'd give that two thumbs up. But instead, they try to save Jonah, and they can't. So they pick him up and toss him over the water, and God grabs him in the mouth of a fish, and he spends three days and three nights there. The fishermen are spared, the sea is calm, they praise Jonah's God. And in the belly of the fish, we see Jonah's moment of surrender. Because he writes these words, this story, right? This song. And at the end of the song, he says, God, let your will be done. It's only you that can save. It's only you that can save. Allow your will to be done. And in essence, he cries out to God and just says, listen, if you can stop me in a storm and then swallow me in a fish, I guess I'm going to do whatever it is that you want me to do. I surrender to your will in my life. God spits him out on shore and he walks to Nineveh. He goes into their streets and begins to preaching. And a few days later, revival comes into the town, comes into the city, comes into their streets. And a people who were doomed to fire and to hell repent of their evil ways and their wickedness and turn back to God. And God spares an entire city full of people because of the surrender of one man. What's interesting to me about this concept of surrender when we look at these two stories is that it is not easy and it evidently is not a one time thing. For these were both people who had surrendered and had also failed to surrender. And they're not the only stories like that, it's not just Old Testament stories. When I look at the New Testament, I see a whole group of people who called themselves Jesus' disciples who didn't even believe that Jesus was really the Son of God truly until after he had been resurrected and ascended into heaven. And then they would receive the Holy Spirit in Jerusalem in the book of Acts. I see a man named Paul who persecuted the church, refusing to surrender to Jesus until on the road to Damascus he encountered him, was thrown to the ground and was blinded. I see a man who doubted, Thomas, who who doubted and refused to believe that Jesus had been resurrected despite what his friends had said until he was able to take his fingers and put them in the holes in Jesus' hands and take his hand and put it in the hole inside of Jesus' side where the spear had been put while he was on the cross. I see the story of a man named Peter who despite walking on water on the Sea of Galilee in the middle of the night where he sunk and was grabbed by Jesus, who was also walking upon the water. Then, as Jesus is arrested after swearing that he would never leave him and never forsake him, would go and die with him, as Jesus is being tried and beaten, the Bible says, within eyesight of Peter, Peter denies even knowing him three times, and on the third time makes eye contact with Jesus himself. I see a people who have always struggled with surrender. I see a people who've always fought to surrender to the will of God in their lives. I see a people as human beings, followers of Jesus, those who desire to obey God, those who desire to be faithful, always struggling to obey the will of God in our lives and surrender to him. The beautiful thing about this concept of surrender is that Paul, the Apostle Paul, gives us this gorgeous picture of what it looks like when the church gets this concept. And I love Ephesians chapter 4 for this reason. It's going to be up on the screen. It's Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16. I've preached on this passage quite a bit lately, actually, oddly enough. But this passage is amazing to me because it gives a glimpse and an image into what the church has the opportunity to be when people live as they should and when we surrender. It says this in verse 11, Now these are the gifts Christ gave to the church the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastors and teachers. Notice it isn't money that he gives to the church. Notice it isn't buildings that he gives to the church. But it's people. It's these It's these gifts, these prophets, apostles, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Their responsibility is to equip God's people to do the work and build up the church. Their responsibility isn't to be the church or to do the work of the church, but to equip the people, the body of Christ. This will continue until we come to such unity in the faith and knowledge of God's Son that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. Then we will no longer be immature like children. No, we will grow up. We won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching. We will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever they sound like the truth. We won't be deceived by the world. Instead, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way, more like Christ who is Jesus, who is the head of the body, the church that is us. He makes the whole body fit together perfectly as each part does its own special work. It helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. Just before this passage in the book of Ephesians, right in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 10, Paul gets done talking about the fact that as a church, we must seek unity. And in order to seek unity, we must first seek surrender. And so when we seek to be surrendered in everything to Jesus first and surrendered to one another second, Then we find unity in the church. And when we become unified as a church, something crazy happens. And that is that God gives us everything we need. Yes, it's all the financial and and, and realistically all the worldly resources that we need to reach the world. But it's these uh, pastors, it's these teachers, it's these prophets, it's these apostles. It's these people that we need to build and make the church what it is. And why do we need them? Why do we need these people? Because it says we need these people so that people can come that are explorers to come to know Jesus and then devote their lives to Jesus and then to grow up to be like Jesus and then to surrender their lives to Jesus. And then through surrendering their lives to Jesus, the cycle continues so that more can come in and learn to know Jesus and become like Jesus and grow up to be. And surrender their lives to him. When people surrender their lives to Jesus, the church begins to become what it was meant to be. And Paul gives us a little glimpse into the beauty of what the bride of Jesus Christ has the opportunity to become when we surrender first and seek unity with each other. What an unbelievable image of what the church has the opportunity to become to raise people up so they're not blown about By all the winds of the world, where they seek Jesus first, where people can come to receive healing through Him. What an incredible image of the church. And it's why this fourth category, these spirit led followers of Jesus, are so important because they have to be there for the church to thrive, heck, for the church to exist. For this church to exist, they had to be there. It took spirit-led followers of Jesus for this church to exist. For it took Nancy and Chris Marshall to be spirit-led followers of Jesus and take moments of surrender, to take a couple thousand dollars, which by that point meant by no means a church should be started and to begin this church. Because when we are spirit-led followers of Jesus, God gives us everything that we need To become his bride. The bride of Jesus Christ, the church. Now each week as we have been talking through these various stages of spiritual growth, we've also talked about the things that each stage in the spiritual growth continuum wants from the church itself. And so I just want to real quickly talk briefly about the things that the people in this last category, the spirit-led followers of Jesus, want from the church. And they're these five things. They want help in understanding the Bible in greater depth. They want help in developing a personal relationship with Jesus. They want church leaders who model and consistently reinforce how to grow spiritually. They want challenge to grow and take the next steps. They want encouragement to take personal responsibility for spiritual growth. Now if you've been taking notes or paying attention, then you would know that last week when we talked about disciples of Jesus, these are the exact same five things in the exact same order. The only unique thing about the two categories is that the people who are in the spirit-led followers of Jesus category want these exact same five things in the exact same five order more passionately than the people who are disciples of Jesus. They just want them in higher percentages. They want the exact same things. And it makes sense because both have given their lives and claim that Jesus is the most important thing in their life. They both want the same things from the church. They both want these five things. The unique aspect about this last category is that despite wanting these things more passionately than any of the other three categories on the spiritual growth continuum, they are the least likely to follow up with how they live. In fact, when they did the study, they examined not only what people said they believed, but also how they lived. And what they found was really interesting. People who claimed that Jesus was the most important thing in their lives and that they were surrendered to his will in their lives above everything else. Who would consider themselves spirit-led believers pretty much unanimously said that tithing and giving to the church and maybe to other ministries uh, in the world was an incredibly important thing to do and it was something that you needed to do. Yet astoundingly, although it was a staggering amount of people in this category that said it was important, there was far, far less people in this category that actually tithed and actually gave. The other thing that they found that was really startling was that almost unanimously everybody in this group said that it was incredibly important to donate your time, to give up your time and your energy to serve the church and to serve the community. Yet what they found was startling, and that was that a far smaller percentage of people who considered themselves spirit-led followers of Jesus actually served in their church and actually served in their community. What ended up happening was this, is that the group that looked like the greatest hypocrites were those who considered themselves spirit-led followers of Jesus. They were the group who didn't live up to the hype the most. Why is that? Why is it the people who claim that their lives are surrendered to Jesus more than any other group, why does it look like their lives aren't? I could be maybe one of two things. One, it could be the fact that there's a lot less people in our culture that actually have their lives surrendered to Jesus than claim. There's a lot of people who have hopeful thinking and want to believe that their lives are surrendered to Jesus when in reality, their lives are surrendered to this world and the things of this world. That the capitalist culture and the seductive things of our world have a much greater hold on American Christians than we would like to believe. In reality, I think the truth is this, that it has to do with this subject of surrender. Because when I look at the apostles, the prophets, the people who knew Jesus himself even, They struggle with this concept of surrender. And when I look at my own life as someone who wants to consider himself a spirit-led follower of Jesus, I also struggle with it. To surrender. And when I look at this spiritual growth continuum, I think, man, we would really like to believe that this is static. That once you take a step into the next category that you're there and that you stay there. But as I look at it, I just have to believe that it's a little bit more liquid than that. Because there are moments when I wake up in the morning and I am just, God, you can have everything. I'm in the word in the morning. I prayed this morning. I took my dog for a walk and I prayed this morning. I did everything for you, Lord. You can have everything. I'm surrendered to your will in my life today. And I'm here to bring God's glory to South Butler School District in every way I can. And I'm committed to that today. And I get into the office and I'm like ready to go. And then at two o'clock in the afternoon, I'm over here in the believer category because I'm surrendered to whatever God wants to do as long as that means that he wants me to eat a sandwich and take a nap. As long as those are the two things, I'm surrendered to it. If those aren't the two things, I'm not willing to surrender or even have a Lord. I'm just willing to believe. And there are days and sometimes even weeks where I wake up and I would love to be surrendered to God, but the truth of the matter is, I'm too afraid of what he might ask of me. I'm too terrified that he might ask of me to give something that's too precious to me, my own security, my own home, my own family. He might ask me to do something that's too uncomfortable, so I'm too settled to stay as a disciple, someone who's devoted to him being Lord, but is gonna keep things in reserve that my Lord does not have access to in my life. You can have 60% of me, Jesus, but this 40% of my life that is comfortable, you simply do not have access to. Why? Because I'm a disciple and I'm not a spirit-led follower. And I land here a lot. And then there are those moments and it's usually after Tuesday night youth group that I find myself over here in the explorer category and I'm just saying, "Jesus, are you even there?" It's cuz I hung out with 6th and 7th and 8th graders all night, by the way. I'm like, "Where are you?" And oftentimes it's because we've just dealt with such ridiculous, horrible oppression that's being put on the kids of this community, things that you could not imagine happen in Saxonburg that I just can't handle. God, where are you? Where are you? And so I know that this thing, this continuum, I would like to think that once I made a moment and I decided to surrender my life to Jesus, that that was it. And I'm over there and I'm in the fourth category and woohoo, come and meet me. But it's just not reality. I feel like there's some days that I spent time in all four areas. And my guess is there's some days that you do too. And despite the fact that I want to say that I identify with that area over there, the truth of the matter is is that that takes every moment, every day, minute by minute, surrendering everything I am to Jesus. And the reality of that is it's just really hard. And so oftentimes, I can talk big, and oftentimes we all can look like a hypocrite because we want to be there, and there's moments when we surrender enough to be there, but it's really hard to live there, and that's really our challenge for today because the reality of it is in our culture today, we need more people in the church who are willing to live there. Because we need more churches that are filled with more spirit-led followers of Jesus. We need more churches who are filled with people who are willing to surrender everything. And that's really what the commitment is about today. The commitment is this. I will keep growing in Jesus by putting him first in all that I am and all that I do. That cannot be done unless we're willing to surrender everything. Our security, our retirement funds, our homes, our safety, our families, our children, our bank accounts. Unless it's all on the table. Unless we're not holding any chunk of it in reserve and saying, Jesus, you have access to everything but. And once we're willing to surrender it all, we take the step into the spirit-led follower of Jesus And the kingdom moves forward. Pray with me. Father, today is not an easy day. And it is not a simple day. The subject of surrender is just hard. Lord, I want to be surrendered to you, but in reality, that daily decision is just one that oftentimes I don't want to make. I thank you for the moments and the glimpses that I do make it. I thank you for those times, God, that we all make that decision. That those of us who are disciples of Jesus take that moment and just surrender everything and say, God, just lead and I'm going to follow no matter what it costs. And I pray that you would raise up more people like that in new life so that you would give us everything that we need, that we may have unity in our faith, And that your kingdom may move forward. In your name, amen.